Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, as I said last week, um, we were in the Gospel of Matthew, and we noticed a few things about the Gospel of Matthew that I want to just bring up as a reminder. And here's the reason why. Because we're studying the Gospels both horizontally, comparing them to each other, and vertically, just looking at the one Gospel and what uh, things, traits are unique about it. So today we're in Mark, but I I do want to ask that question. What were some traits, uh, and you can even refer to your handout if you want to, what were some traits that were unique to Matthew that we want to remember uh, as we dive into Mark's Gospel? What were some traits that were unique? I'm going to write some of these up on the board. Okay, so money, good. Tax collector, money. Okay, other things. Okay, yeah. Interestingly enough, Jewish, I love how you put that, Jewish outsider. And ironically, as a Christian, I'm assuming he's still kind of a Jewish outsider, and yet, I mean, he now has a family that is a new family defined in Christ that have Jews and Gentiles. And so he is inviting his fellow family members from the Jewish community to worship their Messiah. Okay, So some things that went along with that, we talked about this word fulfilled. And we also talked about um, his use of OT scripture. Uh, so quotes or allusions to Old Testament scripture. Interesting thing about Mark, he only has one. That's a big difference. And it's in the second and third verse. So Mark is going to have it as almost like just a launching off point, but then... That's not his audience's primary concern or need. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have allusions to the Old Testament, because there's plenty of allusions in Jesus' ministry to the Old Testament. But as for like quotes, he doesn't say, thus it was fulfilled, Isaiah said, other than that one time. So that's going to be a, a difference. And, and this horizontal study is going to help us to go, okay, there's, there's reason behind that. The audience that Mark is writing to, even though we don't know the exact audience, has a different need to see Jesus. And so that's, that's one example. Other, other thoughts that came out of Matthew's gospel, some things that were traits. The use of mountains. Yeah, the use of mountains. And maybe even a Jewish idea or Jewish concept that they would care about. Okay, good. Um, one of the things you'll see in Luke and uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, some of you remember singing the song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock and the Sand and all of that. Um, some, of, some of the imagery in how houses are built between the gospels are different. Uh, because of the audience. For instance, as Jesus is talking and the, there is a group of people who dig through the thatch of a house. Well, in Luke, it's tiles of a house. Why? Well, it's, he's trying to tell them the story, but they don't have the same kind of architecture. So he uses their terminology to describe what had taken place, that someone had gone through the roof of the house to get through. And when you compare the Gospels, you go, why would they do that? Well, the different audiences helps us understand why they're doing that. Are they being accurate? Yeah, they're being accurate to the story, being sensitive to their audience. Translators still have to do that today, by the way, uh, when it comes to even... Uh, even stories that Jesus told, parables that Jesus told. Um, so I am told that some missionaries in places where shepherding is not a thing to sheep, but it's a thing to another animal, that he will actually, instead of being the good shepherd, be whatever the, the uh, metaphor is there so that they can understand what, what Jesus is talking about. 
And so some of those things can be interesting for us to do as well as we interpret uh, and translate the Bible for other people. All right, so as we get into Mark's gospel, one of the things I want us to understand, I put this text up on the board. It's not in your handout. Um, I put Acts 12, 12 up on the board. If you uh, turn over into your Bibles to that chapter, um, this is a chapter where we have a story of both Peter and Mark. Uh, Mark's name in, so his Jewish name is likely John. His name, we call him John Mark. Mark is most likely his, well, it is, it's his Latinized or it's his uh, more Gentile uh, name. You notice, uh, recognize that many people had two names uh, in that context. So even the Saul, Paul type of names, you have a name that's more of a Gentile uh, name and you have a name that's more of a Hebrew-like name. So in this text, um, I'll just have someone read it for us, um, Acts 12, 12, and it may go into um, verse 13 as well. Okay, so this is the story where Peter's arrested, he's miraculously let out, he goes to this upper room where the disciples are locked, they've locked themselves in. By the way, first several chapters of the book of Acts, that's what the disciples are doing, okay? They're locking themselves in. Why? For fear of, Luke tells us, for fear of the Jews, for fear of them coming to persecute them like they've done with Jesus. Now, in this instance, they're praying for Peter, who has been locked up. Peter comes and, and the person who answers the door doesn't believe him, shuts the door on him. I think it's a ghost, right? Um, here's what I want us to notice. John called Mark. It's his upper room. It's his mom's house, Mary. So here's a hypothesis. We don't know this for sure, but it is quite possible that the upper room where the disciples most often gathered was Mark, John Mark. Uh, it was his mom's house or his house. And that it is possible that even rewinding the tape all the way back to Passover, the upper room, that Passover took place in his home, in his mother's home. And when the disciples are told to go make preparations, it was this home, this household, that was a supporting household of Jesus. Um, tradition would have John Mark be a teenager at this time. And so we're going to notice some things about him. We do see John Mark uh, throughout the book of Acts. Uh, he's traveling with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and he also ends up traveling with Peter, we find in First Peter. Church tradition takes that and fast-forwards that later, and church tradition says that John Mark traveled with Peter even to places like Rome, and that John Mark is listening to these sermons and testimony of Peter of what Jesus has done, and he writes this down, likely to an audience that would be a Roman audience, if not Rome itself. Now, there's some other indications we're going to have that give us evidence that there is a Roman flavor to this book compared to the Gospel of Matthew. And so we'll walk through some of those types of things. Likely, this is either the first or second Gospel written, again, going back to week one. Um, I don't have a problem with Mark being the first Gospel written. Neither do I have a problem with Matthew and, and that they may have used one another, and then, and then based their storylines and then added testimony to that and added details to that. Now, either way, I'm okay with that. Mark was written during a tumultuous time, uh, both in Rome for Jewish people as well as in Israel for Jewish people. Um, this is during a time where just in the years following this, the decade or so following this, there's, there's going to be a Jewish revolt. So 15, 20 years after this gospel is written, the Jewish revolt is going to get so bad in Israel that 70 AD, Jerusalem is going to be overthrown. 
And so I tend to land on this earlier date that I give you, around 50 to 64 AD, uh, for this gospel to be written. Um, and again, by John Mark, who is following after Peter. So this, this gospel, if you, if you go ahead and open up to the book of Mark, um, chapter 1, we're going to do the same thing we did last week. We're going to um, start by looking at some vertical studies. We're going to start by opening up to the first chapter and, and then do some comparisons to the end of the book of Mark um, to notice some traits that are unique with it. Um, so as, as we open up, um, I'll just have someone read that first verse for us. And then we, we actually, as weird as it is, we're going to land here for about 10, 15 minutes uh, at this first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, good. The beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A uh, couple things we need to mention here. Um, number one, there, there is a Jewish flavor to this story. Um, even as we start out with the beginning, you kind of hear this echo. Now, John's going to play it up even more, right? Um, but this word beginning obviously has connotations and connections to like creation itself. This isn't the only place that's going to happen in Mark's gospel. Um, We're going to see the spirit hovering over the water coming down at baptism. Uh, We're going to see the temptation account. We've talked about this is more just ubiquitous or or consistent, excuse me, the right word, consistent in Jesus's story is that Jesus comes as the new Adam. He comes to redo or undo what happened when we sinned. And this word beginning, I think, is an echo of that. Um, There's other things here that are a little bit of a bridge from Judaism or the Old Testament. Um, John the Baptist pops onto the scene, notice right away with no birth narrative. I mean, here's our only Old Testament quote. As was written in Isaiah, verse 2, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, one of the things you need to do with Old Testament quotes is recognize they're a snapshot of a bigger story. And oftentimes, those who would know the story would be taking this one verse and expanding it to recognize there's a whole lot of things that Isaiah says that need to come true. So some of the things that Isaiah says that need to come true is a a Messiah is going to come and he's going to restore the remnant of Israel. They're going to come out of of exile. They're going to come back and God is going to restore them. But also, there's a Gentile element to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, I'm reading Isaiah right now in my devotions. It's a long book. There's a lot in there. But you'll see these snapshots in Isaiah of the nations being gathered as well. And so this one snapshot becomes kind of this bridge from the whole entire Old Testament uh, story through Isaiah's perspective of what God's about ready to do through this one person who's also a prophet, and his name is John the Baptist. So I would say this, this one quote is kind of like that genealogy in Matthew's gospel, where it kind of gives us, rewinds the tape and gives us the story. This one quote rewinds the tape and and plays it as well in a similar fashion. Um, But what we have is a little bit more of a Gentile perspective um, than what we do uh, in Matthew's gospel. So we have John popping on the scene in verse 4. Notice like three verses in and already we're going. Um, We're going to talk about some of this dynamic that if, uh, if someone is a new believer... Uh, Mark is one of the Gospels that oftentimes people say, have them read this first. Now, when I was growing up, people said John. And, and I'm not, you know, I, I don't know that there's a correct answer to this. 
John can be confusing though. There's lots of imagery there that you have to kind of understand. And there's this big discourse after Jesus is in the upper room and you're like, high priestly prayer, what is going on? Mark is like action packed. I mean, almost like, like a comic book. I mean, some, some of you read comic books in, you know, near kids. Um, I read Choose Your Own Adventure books. Partly because I got to skip over half the pages, right? I mean, I could get credit for reading a book, but it was probably only 25% of the book that I actually read. John Mark is kind of like that. I mean, it's kind of just this boom, boom, boom. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. And it's a snapshot picture of who Jesus is and his authority and his power. It doesn't have a lot of Jesus' teaching compared to Matthew. That's one of the things we want to notice is that Jesus doesn't actually talk a lot in the book of Mark. Um, you'll notice those big blocks of text. We talked about five big blocks of text in Matthew's gospel. And big chunks of each of those five was Jesus talking. Mark doesn't have that. So he'll move immediately from section to section to section. He'll get right to the passion narrative. And he'll zip through that. And he'll stop his book with kind of a cliffhanger. And we're like, what just happened? And the question becomes, okay, what do I believe about Jesus? And, and I think that he wrote it that way on purpose. Um, so some people use this book in that way. This does have a Roman flavor to it. And so I want to take this a little bit more slowly um, so that we can notice the nuance. Um, so the beginning of the gospel, this phrase, the beginning of the gospel, we've actually found an inscription um, from 9 BC that talks about Caesar Augustus. So he would be like, you know, the George Washington, Abraham Lincoln kind of name to us, right? That, that describes Caesar Augustus in almost exactly the same terminology that it uses to describe Jesus. Um, I've given you in this box down here this inscription that we found, and toward the bottom of that, notice um, what it says. Uh, it's talking about the birthday of the God, Augustus, the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the good news. Now, there's also words savior and appearance and other words like that that Mark is going to use here in the opening to describe who Jesus is. So Augustus is considered God or son of God, and his arrival, his birth is considered good news, the beginning of the good news. That may play into this, is that some of the terms that Mark is using are terms that, and I'm just going to say for propaganda's sake, had been used of the emperor of Rome. Again, if this audience are people who are either in Rome or Roman, this is, this is painting a picture that who is your king? Who's your real king? Is it Jesus or is it this guy who's dead? That I mean, you have these myths that go around him, but this guy who is dead. And, and so we've had more and more evidence that says, oh, there's, there's significance to some of these phrases that they would have picked up on. Um, even, even this phrase, son of God, notice how this phrase Um, appears in this book. I've listed three of them for you. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, son of God. And then chapter 1, verse 11, we're going to come back to this text in a moment. It's Jesus's baptism, right? And so heaven opens up and a voice calls out, you are my beloved son. And then at the end, it's a centurion. Now, Mark's not the only gospel to mention the centurion, but the centurion says, truly, this man was the or a son of God. So three times in this book, this really book end or inclusio is that Jesus is the son of God. This good news gospel is not that Rome has a king, not that Rome is in charge, is that Jesus is king and that Jesus has come and that he is reigning. 
Um, so we, we noticed some of those things right off the bat. Turning to the next page, still talk about this Roman flavor. We've already mentioned there's only one Old Testament quote, and it comes right away as somewhat of a bridge into the text. Uh, but there's also what are called Latinisms, which obviously Romans uh, spoke Latin. And so there are some Latinisms uh, in the Gospel of Mark. So one of those, 1242, um, if you flip over to, we'll give you an example of this and what we're talking about. So in 1242, what we have, and we have it translated in most of our Gospels, um, the copper penny or the copper coin, um, this lepta is a Latinism. It's a Latin term. And so unlike the other Gospels, we get the phrases or the imagery written in Latin rather than um, you know, having maybe an Old Testament Greek, Septuagint Greek, or even, even at times a Hebrew or Aramaic background to them. Now, in Mark, any time that Jesus does speak, he'll, he'll say uh, on the cross, Lama, Lama, Allah, Shabbatani. Mark will say, which means, and then he'll spell it out for them what it means. So Mark, and John is going to do the same thing, because I think John has a Gentile audience. Um, but Mark takes terms and explains what they mean. And when he, so oftentimes what he does is he actually just takes them in their Latin use and puts them in front of his audience. So we have some Latinisms uh, as well as some explanations. Uh, here's one of the most interesting. Turn over to Mark 15, 21. Mark's the only person to tell us this story. So this is a, this is a horizontal comparison. And we're asking a vertical question. Horizontal comparison. Mark is the only one who gives us this detail. 1521, um, we have Jesus on uh, what, what is called now the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, the way of suffering. Um, and on this way of suffering, uh, he falls down. Um, and, and so we have kind of this you know, narrative that we have played out. So while, while we have this, we have in verse 21, this character. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming from the, country, uh, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So we have this character. His name is Simon of Cyrene, and his uh, sons are Alexander and Rufus. And I know we're flipping around quite a bit, but go to the book of Romans, chapter 16. And in Romans 16, 13, which obviously the audience here is fairly obvious um, because it is Romans, um, we have this greeting in Romans from Paul. Greet Rufus, chosen from the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Well, some of the question is, who is this Rufus that is here and he's in Rome? Is he known? He seems to be well known. Uh, some hypothesis would say this is the same one as this Simon of Cyrene and that Rufus is now in the church in Rome. And it would make sense of why Mark would add this detail here because this family is part of the audience or this family is well known to the audience. So that's one of the hypotheses about this Roman audience as well is this little addition of a detail. There's other unique details as well. For instance, the mentioning of wild beasts while Jesus is being tempted. And, you know, knowing the Roman story as well as the Christians in Rome and their story, Jesus being tempted in the presence of, and, and he's in the wilderness, wild beasts, there, that detail matters to the Roman audience. Why, why, would that, why would that detail matter? Why would that play out differently for them? And the Roman 
theater, Colosseum, some of them were being thrown, tempted to deny, to deny Jesus with wild beasts. And angels come and they minister to Jesus in this, in this moment. So we have some details like that that, again, cause us to go, why are these here unique to Mark, not in the other Gospels? And as we put those evidence, you know, pieces of evidence together, it paints this picture that helps us go, perhaps this is why. Perhaps this audience is a Roman, and I don't just mean only in Rome, but a Roman audience more than a Jewish audience. And they have a different concerns as well as different things that Jesus did that communicate to them what they need in the midst of their discipleship. Um, so questions, thoughts about that thus far? That, that's kind of just an introductory, these are some things we can look for as we're walking through. All right, so if I'm going to put a label on uh, Jesus, at, like how Mark paints a picture of Jesus differently than Matthew's gospel, this is the label I put on. Don't assume that this is like the only label you can use, okay? Um, this, is, this is my label that helps me kind of differentiate even as I process myself. What is the big picture that Mark's trying to do? So here's, here it is, uh, the messianic secret revealed. So you know this, no one expected the Messiah to look like Jesus looked and to act like Jesus acted. The Jews didn't expect it, neither did the Gentiles. And so they crucified Jesus because they expected him to what? Want to usurp Roman authority through military power. But the cross is exactly what Jesus was coming to do. So in the Gospel of Mark, he highlights this element of Jesus' ministry. Now, the other Gospels mention it as well. But Mark seems to put an access point on it, or mark on it. Jesus will tell his disciples and other people, those who are possessed by demons, those who are healed, he'll tell them either to be quiet or to not tell anyone his identity. Which at first we're like, wait, why? Like, I don't know if that's ever confused you, but it's confused me before. Like, could you imagine us pulling that out in a sermon? And Jesus told him here not to tell anyone. And thus, we as a church are not supposed to tell anyone about what Jesus does for us. You notice how confusing that can be, right? Um, and yet, there is this element of because his time is not right, his time has not come. And we get some of that from the other Gospels as well. But Mark's Gospel, as we're going to see in a minute, I think even like ends with that tension. Um, I think it ends with the tension of, is anyone going to tell? And it kind of leaves it up to us to go, are we going to tell? Like, there's this side that goes, now that it's time to talk, are we actually going to talk? And so not only is Jesus look different than what we expect him to, but once it's time to tell who he is, the question becomes, so are we going to tell? Or is this still a secret? Because it's not supposed to be a secret still. It was for a season, but it's not anymore. Um, so, so here's the case study. Um, you know, Jesus is always telling people to be silent. Um, but we come to the end of this book. So we've already mentioned the beginning of the book. And, and we'll do a little bit more of a case study on this. Um, but we come to the end of the book. And turn over to Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Does anyone have there um, a statement that's in brackets? It's not actually in your text, but it's a note. What, what does that say in your Bible? Okay, so, and I think some of you are in a class maybe where I've talked about this before. So we want to land here, but we, we want to notice this is fairly unique in Mark's gospel. Now, in places, just so you know, a little bit of like manuscript. Techno technical terminology. In manuscript studies, 
there are families of manuscripts that we have of the Bible. And we compare those manuscripts. Some of them are regional. So we have some from like Egypt. And so we compare those. Some of them are based upon what time they came from or even what they were composed of. Papyri or various uh, elements. And so through these manuscripts, we do the best we can to say which, uh, what text was in the original document that Mark or John wrote. And for the most part, they're, they are just confirming over and over again that we have um, high-quality trans- transmission of those documents down through the earliest generations of the church. Um, there are two places that, that I want to highlight um, that, that have these kinds of brackets. Now, there's other one-verse statements that you'll notice a footnote, or sometimes you'll notice a verse that's just missing. Have you ever noticed this before? You're reading it, skips a verse. You're like, wait a second. You know, what kind of Bible do I have? Um, and what's happened is, is that as we've discovered more manuscripts, they've discovered that probably wasn't a likely verse, that, that that was added by a scribe later on. Sometimes to help explain what was going on. Sometimes because another gospel had it, and the scribe is going, wait, this is supposed to, Jesus is supposed to say this or do this. And so instead of having that harmonizing effect, they actually just put it all in there. And then we've realized from manuscript studies later, oh, that probably wasn't originally in this particular gospel. None of that is to the point to where we're like, oh, Jesus really didn't come. Or, oh, Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. Or Jesus didn't really. No, that like we have we have more evidence than anything that we have accurate, reliable documents. Now, I say that to say this. Uh, Mark 16, 9, all the way through the end of this gospel, 9 through 20, um, appears to be, based upon our evidence that we have now, appears to have been added later, at a later time, using some content from other gospels, as well as even just church tradition. Now, we're going to come back and evaluate that and ask, why would they have done that today? We need to do that, okay? Um, but there's another place, uh, John, we'll notice in John chapter 8, there's a story of um, a crowd throwing stones at a woman. And Jesus says, you know, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. You'll notice those same brackets and uh, the, that same comment around that story. Doesn't mean Jesus didn't do it. No, we just, we want to make sure those who, uh, you know, put your manuscripts together in a Bible form, uh, in a book form, want to make sure that you're aware Man, this is one of those that we go, is it in the, you know, was it in the original? We're not quite sure. Because they, they want to be accountable to you so that you have the best information you have to study God's word. Um, so that is true here. Now, that being said, um, there are different endings that uh, in manuscripts have been added on to the end of Mark. Um, and this is, this is the one that we have the most attestation for. Um, but I, I tend to believe that Mark ended his gospel intentionally at the end of verse 8, and that later scribes and maybe even a family of, by family I don't mean relatives, a group of Christians went, it can't end that way, let's add something. And they took and borrowed from other places and added this ending that said, here's how the gospel ends. Now, the reason for that being is, notice how it ends. Um, And I want to back up to verse 6 in verse 16. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. This is an angel. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, notice the and Peter, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. 
for trembling, or excuse me, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, you and I both go, that is no way to end the gospel, right? That is no way to end it. But if you followed this secret throughout, throughout as kind of this narrative tool that Mark uses, it's actually fairly creative. Um, the entire time Jesus has been saying, don't go tell, don't go tell. Don't go tell. My time's not come. Don't go tell. Now, there's tension because if, if they tell, it may cause Rome to come in and the, the Jewish leaders to come in and take him away or arrest him. And it's not the plan of God. Don't go tell. So it's all about this timing of God, plan of God. Don't go tell. Don't go tell. And at the very end, it's like, okay, timing of God has flipped. Go tell. And they don't go tell anyone. And you're like, wait. Like some of you have watched movies this way, right? Those movies that have this cliffhanger at the end and you're like, which did they do? What happened? What is it? And then, you know, in your head, you're like, well, if I were, if I were the one who was doing that movie, I would have written it this way. And I would have written it that they went and told everybody. Well, see what Mark does in that moment is he's like, yeah, you, you get to. Like you get to be the producer of the end of this story in your life. So you get to tell the end of the story. So are you going to be afraid and tremble or are you going to say nothing to anyone or are you going to go out and tell everyone? And so for this Roman audience, you think about that, what, which one are you going to do? And I, I think John, in the same way he starts his gospel, kind of just a boom. Isaiah says, John the Baptist, baptism. And he just kind of immediately goes one, 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 one. He just stops it and goes, okay, what are you going to do? Now, I think, you know, even with evidence, so there's strong evidence for this, I think that's how Mark ended it very much on purpose. I think there's also evidence for why someone would have added on to that. Because you know that people hate cliffhangers like that. And so we have in the rest of this is we have a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, echo of Matthew's gospel and other accounts. But we have kind of this great commission text that is there. But there's also some things in here that aren't in other places in the New Testament, even kind of this pick up serpents with their hands and drink deadly poison. Now, we know that Paul gets bitten by a snake and that he is okay and some of those types of things. But we just, there, there's some of these things that we don't have other places. And yet others of this is almost exactly, you know, what we have in other gospel accounts. Um, again, not saying that this wasn't true or that Jesus didn't say this. I would just go, we don't have a lot of evidence for it. And, and I guess what I'd say to kind of some of those churches in like the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, I don't know that I would base like my entire worship practice on a text that is at best iffy of whether or not Mark wrote it and therefore Jesus says it. Um, I, I hope that, you know, first of all, doesn't like shock, rock your faith. Um, that's the reason the brackets are there is so that, you know, you know, they, they are holding themselves to a high level of accountability to give you accurate information. Thoughts on that or reactions to that? You know, I don't, I don't, I'd have to go back and study that. I'd have to go back and look at manuscripts and, and see if we have evidence for uh, which family started adding that in. Um, and I can do that. I'll try to look that up and see if I can bring that back for you next week. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think that's, and I'm going to use the word, I think it's a beautiful picture, but I think it's also like this, 
incredibly challenging question that he leaves off at the end. And obviously, if you're hearing the gospel, you're assuming someone went and told. And so you're thankful for that. Um, notice, you know, in Luke, Luke's gospel, he's going to end up telling the book of Acts. So Luke's approach is drastically different. Luke is going to lead us right up to um, the, the story of where he's going to start. In fact, he's going to overlap the book of Acts with his gospel because he has part one, part two. So Luke is overly intentional about saying, and here's how everyone learned about, you know, learned about the gospel. And he talks about Paul's travels and Peter's travels. And so the part two, the, the, the story of Acts or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, however you want to see that, um, it, it becomes what Mark doesn't do. Which again makes sense. If, if Luke is using either Mark or Matthew or maybe both, it makes sense for him to go, okay, there's more story. And for him to add the gospel uh, to his gospel, some of the details, as well as this second book, which is the book of Acts. So here's devotionally where one of the things that I take out of the gospel of Mark. Um, when Jesus reveals himself to me, um, do I turn around and reveal it to others now that I'm, now that I'm told to? Um, the disciples in this gospel, they, they fumble they, more than any other gospel. They, they look foolish. They don't get it. They're deaf. And if Mark is relaying Peter's story and Peter's teaching, I don't know that that should surprise us. That, that Peter paints a picture to where he specifically as kind of a point person for the disciples where he looks like he doesn't get it. He looks like he doesn't get it. He looks like he doesn't get it. Why? Because this is a story about Jesus, not the disciples. And, that, and, and Jesus is willing to use people who are dense and deaf, and yet he uses them in incredible ways. Devotionally, I come out of that and go, me too. Me too. Um, and sometimes I go, man, are we ever going to get this? And, and I realize he uses us nevertheless. So if I were outlining the Gospel of Mark, um, here's kind of that next page. If I were outlining the Gospel of Mark, uh, Michael DeFazio teaches this first outline, by the way, uh, and I tend to agree with him on this, that this Gospel opens up with this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Just trying to paint this picture. Jesus is the Messiah. Look at what he does. He uh, overthrows demons. He heals people. He does these miracles. This is what Jesus does. So it's story after story after story. Jesus is the Messiah. In this particular part of the story, he's in Galilee. Now, here's a weird thing between Mark and John. In Mark, he doesn't ever go back to Jerusalem. Like, you know this from even um, comparing uh, Luke's gospel to where Jesus is in Jerusalem in the temple as he's 12 years old. And later on, he goes back to the temple. In John's gospel, he goes back and forth. In fact, it's only by John's gospel that we get the, we get the uh, framework that Jesus' ministry is around three, three and a half years. Because we wouldn't get that from Mark. He only is in Jerusalem at the end. So kind of the geographic theology, um, we have some of that here, just kind of this journey to Jerusalem. He's in Galilee. He's teaching, I am the Messiah through his, now, again, mainly through his miracles, through his acts, through his works. Uh, thinking Roman mind, you're thinking story of accomplishments and works and those types of things. Um, then in 831, there's a hinge, similar to the one we saw in Matthew 16. Peter confesses, you're the Christ, okay, you're the Messiah. And Jesus begins to reveal, yeah, but I'm the Messiah who's also going to suffer. So the first part is, I'm the Messiah. Great, you're the Messiah. Yes, I'm a suffering Messiah. Oh. And the rest of the journey is the journey to the cross. And then 14 through 16 is the, the Messiah is what takes place in the passion 
and in the resurrection. And so we have this in Galilee and in the teaching on the road to Jerusalem that says, I'm going to suffer, and then the actual in Jerusalem narrative of his suffering. So kind of this three-part uh, play to the book. Now, another, another person has outlined it this way. It's, it's, notice it's the same outline, but it's Christ's successes in 1, 8 through 30, and then Christ's sufferings. Mark uh, Christian here, uh, that was confusing, Mark. Uh, Mark Christian here uh, a couple weeks ago outlined, or maybe it was last week, uh, showed us that that graphic on stage represents kind of an outline of, I had not known that that was true, um, that it represents kind of this uh, narrative, this flow of the Gospels. And if this were true in Mark's Gospel, and only notice he's taken all four Gospels, but if this were true in Mark's Gospel, it would kind of look like this, um, even with a, obviously with a resurrection at the end. Because um, it looks like Jesus is gathering, gathering people, and he's getting more and more crowd around him. And then he starts saying, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer. And people start leaving him, leaving him, leaving him. We get to the passion. And then obviously we have resurrection at the end. Um, but we never really get back to the crowds following him. Why? Because no one tells. So, so we have kind of this tension in the narrative plot of, of the Gospel of Mark that's somewhat interesting um, compared to some of the others um, looking at them. Um, so as, as we look through, here's a couple other things that I want to look at that are just unique, um, unique to Mark. It's the shortest account. Here's the weird thing. Even though Mark has the shortest page count, the stories he does include, oftentimes he includes more details than the other two, Matthew or Luke, the other two synoptic one-eye gospels. So it's kind of interesting to me to where we have this dynamic that you may have you know, a shorter gospel, but actually in some of the stories he tells, he actually is sometimes longer than the other two. And the other two are moving along to teaching, but Mark adds these details of the story and plays them out. Um, so, you know, things like Jesus, um, you know, sleeping on the cushion. We've already mentioned the wild animals and some of the other types of things. Is that because Peter was there and he's able to give some of these details? And that's how he tells his story. Um, I think some of that can be true. Uh, we mentioned this two weeks ago. Mark loves the word immediately. It's 42 times in his gospel. Notice it's only six in Matthew three in Luke and three in John. That's that horizontal comparison where you're like, what's different about this gospel? That's, that's one of those you're like, that's incre- that, that is such a high statistic that you know, stylistically or because of his audience, this is very intentional. So he loves this. He also loves the word and. Now, some of us who speak love the word and as well as filler, right? Um, and he's always going and, 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 and he just moves one thing to the next immediately and immediately and, and he's just moving things along. He uses, and this is you know, technical, I've tried to, to put it in kind of just uh, user-friendly. He uses what is called historic present vocabulary. Here's what I mean by that. When he's telling a story, instead of saying Jesus went, he says things like Jesus goes. Now, what that does as a, as a listener in the audience is that it makes you part of the story. Now, it's, it's a literary device, right? So instead of making it something that happened in the past, you become part of the story. And Jesus, he's, he's going to Jerusalem. And the disciples are saying, oh, we're going to die with you. And every, so everything's present. And, and there is this heightened sense of urgency in this book because of that. So he does that more often than the other two. I've already mentioned there's limited, limited teaching discourses compared to the other two. Um, he just doesn't break. Why? He's always moving to the next thing, right? Matthew's gospel, you have action, and then you have, and Jesus was on a mountain, and he started talking. And, and you slow down in the action, and there's not a lot of action. It's just this long discourse. Now, I'm not saying it's boring, 
but it, it's a pause, and Mark doesn't take time for that. Um, another thing that, that is interesting, um, and I, there's several words that could be used to describe this. Um, Mark does this more than others. It's called sandwiching. So just be watching for this. Other words are interpolation, inter cal uh, calculation, dovetailing or framing. Here's all I mean. Um, there's a story of two women. Uh, one is of a girl and one is of a woman. And Jesus has this woman come up and touch him in the middle of a story. And he pauses and heals her. And then he gets back to the story of healing the girl. Um, this is what I mean, is that there, there's this action, and there's this break in the action where something else happens. And then there's this tension of like, well, what's Jesus going to do? And he comes back, and he brings resolution to that. That happens often in the book of Mark. And so notice those types of things as well as we move along. It creates this sickness as we go along. Um, here's the last, last couple things. Um, number one, uh, so we've already mentioned limited visits to Jerusalem. I think one of the things this does is it builds the tension in the book, right? All this action stuff. Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. But the fact that he's not there multiple times causes you to go, when he gets there, something big is going to happen, right? And he starts to acknowledge this in front of his disciples. When I get there, I'm going to be. And, and so this tension is when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, something big is going to happen. So I think there's even some narrative purpose behind that. Now, in this number eight, Jesus will oftentimes withdraw and retreat. And he'll pull out of the action. He'll pray. That's something we can learn, by the way, from Jesus. Um, in fact, Jesus gives us not only permission, but tends to, if we want to follow him, tends to kind of say that's what it means to follow him, is to pause from all the chaos and the action. And, and I love that contrast in the Gospel of Mark. Because you do get this immediately, immediately, and, and, and. And that's how I feel even from this week. Like, I'm going... <gasps> right? And Jesus is going, hey, it's okay to stop. Now, Jesus sometimes was up all night praying. So it's not that he wasn't exhausted or at times tired. or I mean, he is going, 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 having people who need him all the time. He is fully God, but he is also fully man. And so he is thirsty. He gets hungry. He gets tired. And, and so we have this example that it is okay to do that. And Mark mentions that more than all the others. I don't know if that's intentional because of his immediately and but I kind of go, man, we should pay attention to that rhythm. So those are some interesting things. I want to point out uh, two more kind of case studies in just our last couple minutes of so some interesting things that Mark does. And, and by doing this, we're going to go back and do, like we did with Matthew, a comparison of a beginning story and an end story. And so if you have uh, Mark again, go to Mark chapter 1, verse 10. It's a familiar story to us. It's the baptism of Jesus. And in this story, um, Jesus comes to John the Baptist. But verse 10 says, when Jesus comes up out of the water immediately, there's our catchphrase, right? Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, as we do a horizontal comparison between all the other gospels, Mark alone uses this exact word, uh, this phrase, torn open. And it causes us to go, interesting. And, and maybe we just go, okay, he had a unique word. What happens when we do the horizontal study next to the vertical study is then we ask the question, how else did Mark use this word? Did, was he unique in using this word other places? And so this, that comes to our next verse, which we'll move over there in a minute. Here's what I want us to notice after this phrase torn open. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So we have something being torn, heaven being torn. And again, you go, how is heaven torn open? Right? I mean, 
visually you're trying to picture that. If you're a producer of a movie, a Jesus movie, you'd be like, bright light. I'm just going to go with bright light, right? And a dove comes down. Um, actually, when we did baptisms, it reminds me, we did baptisms at the Jordan River in Israel. And um, as we were doing them, white doves flew down and landed on the posts next to us, to which all 14 of, 13 of our guys were like, wow, Mark Moore, you're so incredible doves. And what, what he and I both knew was that they had trained these doves to go and land and then go back up. And it was like all this like production kind of moment, right? Um, and so, but it's, you know, to emit, uh, imitate this and to, to uh, in many ways, echo this, um, but we have this dove and notice the spirit is like a dove descending. So the spirit comes down to him. It's hard to visualize what this scene looks like. But this phrase torn open and this, this confession. Now turn over to Mark 15:38 at the end of his gospel. So in 1538, we have Jesus, and uh, he, is, he is dying at this point. Okay? And so Jesus, in verse 37, backs up and says, uh, he utters out in a loud voice, and he breathes his last. At that, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Same word. Was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, after this, notice what we have. And the centurion who stood facing him saw that, uh, saw that in this way he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the son of God. We have something that is torn and we have a confession of Jesus being the son of God right after each other. Now, sometimes when you're reading vertically, we miss, I miss those things. So sometimes it's helpful that someone else points them out. Okay? I'm not the first person to find this. Okay? Someone else pointed it out to me. This is what can, these are the kinds of things we can mine when we slow down, but also compare horizontally and go, why did Mark do this? And then go, maybe there's another reason vertically of why he did this. Here's why I think he did this. Temple curtain um, is about as thick as your hand. It's 35 foot tall and about 60 to 65 feet wide. It's a tall curtain. And so for it to be torn, notice how it's torn in this text from top to bottom, 35 feet in the air. This temple curtain was the thing that divided inside the temple, the most holy place from the holy place. The only person who got access into where the the Ark of the Covenant used to be was the very high priest. And it represented the very presence of God. So when this curtain is torn in half, it is God saying, now there is access. I mean, theologically, this is what it's saying. There is access into my presence. And honestly, even to the temple, it is saying what Jesus prophesied, you don't need the temple. So even kind of God's judgment of the temple system and the temple itself, kind of the politics around it, he's done that before. He used Babylon, to, or excuse me, yeah, he used Babylon to do that before. It, it's symbolic. And, and here's the other weird thing. If you do an Old Testament study of the symbols that were on that curtain and in that, in that room, the curtain represented this dividing line between us and where we dwell and where God and where he dwells. So you have like angels on it, but you also have all of these images that make it kind of seem like this uh, firmament or this division between heaven and earth. Now, obviously, you know, my little kids think God is up there and yet... We also kind of know God is everywhere, but there's something that divides us. So here's what I want you to take. I want you to take the story of Jesus' baptism and heaven is torn open. And this story of 
the holy place being torn open. They're the same. Jesus comes, and in his baptism, he is representing the fact that through him and through his death, what does baptism represent? Death. Death, burial, and resurrection. So through his death, burial, and resurrection, as he comes out of the water, heaven is torn open. This is my son in whom I will please. The Holy Spirit comes down on him. As happened to Jesus at his baptism, so can happen to us at his death. Through his death, we are able to gain access into heaven. And God still says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And we follow him through his death into where we can now dwell with God and have access to him through him who is our high priest. I think Mark is doing all of that through this one word and this confession. And sometimes we back up and go, whoa, didn't see that. And I'm, I'm the same way. Okay, So sometimes slowing down on these types of things that the Gospels do that are unique and different help gain for us a bigger picture. Now, does this change how we see Jesus? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, can we find it other places? But I think it helps us understand why the temple curtain is torn and, and why some of the imagery of the baptism is there. And it gives us this theological understanding of what God is trying to tell us. And, uh, and, and I'm okay with us looking for those kinds of things and going... Wow, I didn't see that. That's, that's richer than what I ever thought it was. Thoughts, questions about that? Okay. I, I don't think that we're just making it up by looking at that, by the way. Um, there, there are times where I go, sometimes we can make too much of something. That is one of those I go, confession, the word torn, death, resurrection, heaven and temple imagery, that's there. And, and we can't miss that. All right, here's the last case study for today. Mark 14, uh, 51 through 52. And maybe this is, I can't remember which. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, this is that story. Okay, so in the garden, this is the only gospel that mentions this character. Okay, in the garden when Jesus is betrayed, um, all the disciples in verse 50, they all leave Jesus and they're all afraid. And then verse 51 has this little, little story. And a young man, notice a young man, followed him. Um, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Someone's in their PJs. Now, if the Last Supper was in the upper room, in John Mark's upper room, could you imagine a teenage boy leaving in his PJs to follow this crowd and see where they're going to go, the group of disciples? Yeah, you can picture that, can't you? So he goes out to this garden. Now, I was um, at a place that a church has a hypothesis that it is the upper room. Um, so it's actually three stories down. You have to go downstairs to get to what used to be, because of archaeology, an upper room. Whether it is or not, like most things in Jerusalem, we don't know. Um, but if he leaves this upper room and if he goes out, um, I went to a garden, and one of, the, one of the epiphanies, one of the aha moments I had in Jerusalem, which I expected to have several, was that gardens today on the Mount of Olives are all private. So like the one that we went into was owned by Franciscan monks. Uh, you had to pay to get in. It was a donation. Um, you had to pay to get in, and it was a private garden. And then as a group, you had a time slot. You got to be by yourself there, unlike the, the Catholic spot on the, the mountain, which was just open access, and you could go, but it was a crowded wall-to-wall people. So we were in a garden area on the Mount of Olives. It was Olive Grove by ourselves. And one of the things that I realized as I'm sitting there in silence, looking over the city of Jerusalem is, this was likely still a private garden that Jesus went to. 
This was a, this was a major city. You didn't have space around it that wasn't owned by someone. And it could be that this is not only John Mark's mom's upper room, but his family's garden as well. I don't know, but it's a possibility. And we have this young man who followed, and um, they seize this young man, and he runs away with nothing on. And, and part of the question becomes this, and, and I'm not the first one, and, and we're not the first one generationally asked this question. Who is this young guy? Why add this detail? I think it's Mark. I think it's Mark, and, and kind of like John, right, it's Mark's way of writing himself into the story without giving himself a, a lot of you know, credit. Um, John, by the way, won't use his own name in his gospel. He'll call himself the beloved. He doesn't even mention his own name. I think this is John Mark's way of doing this. And once again, we have this story of someone who is okay with themselves looking foolish. Um, but at the same time, that tension that says, and yet I wanted to follow Jesus. Uh, Mark's an interesting study because um, Paul at one point didn't really like him. Paul got really upset with him. And Barnabas said, okay, I'll take him with me. Later on, Paul will say, oh, Mark's useful. Bring him along with you. And he's this character that is this character that sometimes he does the right thing and sometimes he's afraid. Notice the end of the book of Mark. They were afraid. They were afraid. Do you think that's Mark's story? I think it is when I read the Gospels. At times he was afraid, and that's why Paul was frustrated with him. And yet he comes back, he comes back. And, uh, and so sometimes I need to look at Mark's story and go, um, what in this looks an awful lot like, like me? I hope that's helpful for you, kind of a run through. Uh, we're going to go through Luke's Gospel next week. Uh, we may take two weeks for Luke's Gospel. We may take two weeks for John's Gospel. Uh, obviously, this one's shorter. It's helpful for that. But we may need to slow down on the next two. Uh, We'll see you then. Thanks for hanging with me. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.